If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Now, most political origin stories have the same background backbone. A bright young person starts reading the post as a grade schooler, skipping school to see their first presidential candidate by sixth or seventh grade, canvassing for a candidate door to door. The story can be intimidating, reinforcing that feeling that politics is somewhat of a closed system. If you weren't in debate club, the young Democrats, the young Republicans are model UN, there's no chance you're going to be successful. Well, Karine Jean-Pierre's story breaks that mold. She's out now with a memoir and a bit of a manifesto primer called Moving Forward, where she talks to us about how she got involved, showing how politics can be and should be accessible to everyone no matter their background. She writes in today's political climate, the need for all of us to participate has never been more crucial. Her book is Her Call to Arms. For those who know that now is the time for us to act. A little bit about Corrine. Her experience has ranged widely from presidential campaigns to grassroots activism. If you're listening, you will know she is the woman who stood up on stage at a forum featuring Senator Kamala Harris when an audience member got up and walked on stage. And Corrine Jean-Pierre, we want to welcome you to Perspectives. Thank you for joining us. Let's just start with that moment. What went through your mind that day and take our audience back to what you were doing with the senator and what happened and how you responded. Thank you, first of all, for having me, Condis. It's a, it's a joy and it's an honor. I'm really happy to be here in Atlanta, Georgia as well. Um, so that moment, that happened June 1st. We were in San Francisco. It was the big ideas forum for Move On. We had eight presidential candidates who had agreed to come on stage with us. I was one of three, uh, one of two actually, that was interviewing the different candidates. Kamala Harris, Senator Harris was on, on stage with me and my colleague, Stephanie, and we were talking about her big idea. And it's really interesting because at the moment, we were talking about women and a policy that could affect women and women of color. And this guy comes from the back of the room onto the stage with all of his privilege. And it, it was a moment where I didn't think about much. I just thought, who is this person? 24 hours prior, there was that awful, awful shooting at Virginia Beach. I thought, here's a woman of color, black woman sitting right next to me who's running for president. We're living in a divisive, very divisive time, polarizing time. And I just got, I just thought I needed to jump up and act and and protect her. That was just my instinct at the time. But I have to tell you, Condes, it led into this much more nuanced, deeper conversation that I had with women. Like as I mentioned, this individual, a male, comes on stage. Three women on stage. We had a DJ. Two of us. Uh, two of us. Um, uh, two of us were doing the moderating, and so four women, and also um, Senator Harris. And women. It was a. It was a moment for women that reminded them of their everyday life, of how they go through a scenario and 
in, in the male world, you get stepped on, you get cut off. There's, a, there's, a, there's also this feeling of, of unsafe, being unsafe. And the conversation that I had with women about that moment resonated in such a big way that I did not even realize. And did you know that the moment was going to go viral? No, I actually thought... Um, I actually thought after I got off stage, it took about another two hours before I was able to get off stage because we were interviewing a long list of candidates. I thought, oh, this moment's going to go away. It'll, you know, I didn't even know I had gone viral. I mean, when, you know, you know, when local, uh, local TV stations are talking about something national in such a big way, you know, you've gone viral. And I was surprised. I thought it was going to go away. I think I told you this story when we started uh, our con before we, we got on air. I decided not to tell my mom about it. My mom is, you know, typical mom. She worries about me because I travel all the time. And she's like, I'm still her baby, even though <laughs> I'm way, way past being the baby. And so my brother and I got on the phone that day and we're like, oh, we're not, we're not going to tell her because she's just going to worry. No need for her to worry. And this will all go away. Three days, four days later, this clip has gone completely viral. And my mom calls me and she says to me, can you tell me about what I've been hearing? I went to the bank. Someone said that you stepped in front of Kamala Harris. What is, can you tell me exactly what happened? Because my mom doesn't have cable, even though I'm on MSNBC all the time. She doesn't watch cable, so she didn't even see it. She doesn't have a TV. She actually didn't see it herself. And I told her, I explained what happened. Uh, my brother was there and showed her the video, and she said, that's my girl. She's like, that is my girl. That's the person that I raised you to be, to be fearless, to care about people. And she was so proud. She had the opposite reaction that I thought of her being scared and more, even more fearful for me. She thought how courageous it was. And that is a, the young daughter in her mind that she raised to be. So you have an Ivy League degree. Now you are teaching at Columbia University. You teach campaign management. You worked in the Obama administration. Yours was not the traditional path to political activism. How did you decide this was your path? Yeah, it was a very zigzag path, if you will. Um, I grew up in an immigrant household. Uh, both my parents are Haitian. When we came to this country, my parents, the way they saw success was you had to be one of three things, a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer. And for them, they thought I would be a doctor. So I spent a lot of my young life through college thinking I was going to go to medical school and become a doctor, and that didn't work out for me. And so it took a while because I had, I, I had, I was depressed as well after I decided not to do that because I thought I was so disappointing my family. And they went through so much hardship. Um, so in my mind, that disappointment was, was going to kill them. And so I carried this burden around and had to deal with all my own depression in that moment and pulling myself out of that. So I do talk about mental health in this book, which I think is really important for people to talk about. There's a stigma around it. And uh, and I hope come I hope that story coming from someone like me that people see on TV, they can see you can get on the other side of it. So that's one of the reasons I brought that up. But I went back. I went to grad school, went to Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, got my master's. I, I started off focusing on environmental policy because that's something that I had an interest in prior to attending Columbia and um, and I still wasn't sure. I wasn't. I really was didn't know what my passion was. And then I did something that was really important. I went to Haiti for the first time, and that changed my perspective. That changed my my look on what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to do something that was purposeful. And I had two mentors that 
that helped along the way. Uh, they were professors at the school. David Dinkins, who was the first African-American mayor of New York City, was teaching at SEPA, and Professor Esther Fuchs, who at the time, because I went to... Um, I was at Columbia starting at 2001 to 2003. She was working on Mayor Bloomberg's first uh, mayoral race. And so she was in politics, but also a professor and clearly Dinkins. And they encouraged me to go into... Um, to go into politics, and that's kind of how it all started. And something else happened. 2001, first week of uh, of Columbia, September 11th happened, Yeah, which was devastating, heartbreaking, and it made me realize that I was living in a bubble, and there was so much more happening outside of my bubble. And the school that I went to, as I mentioned, was International Public Affairs School. So I got to meet people from other parts of the world uh, who, who was there to study. So there were all of these interesting transitions and uh, growing up and learning and my mind opening up and politics was something that was suggested that I leaned into and the rest is kind of history. <laughs> the uh, subtitle of your book is A Story of Hope, Hard Work, and the Promise of America. Mm -hmm. Beyond wanting to be a published author, as I said in our opening, not only are you teaching people who want to be more involved and more engaged in the process. Uh, you share a lot of your own personal story. Yeah. How did you decide what you wanted to put in your first book? Yeah, that's a good question because when I, you know, you get the book deal, you kind of have an idea because you write a proposal of where the book is going to go, and then you have to sit down and write it. You know, you have to sit down and earnestly <laughs> put something to paper. And it was hard because I knew it was part memoir and like I knew it was a part call to action. But I'm like, wow, what am I going to share about myself that matters and that's going to change people's lives? And I decided I'm going to be raw. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to live in my truth. And I thought to myself, what are things that people are dealing with that we just don't talk about? Right. And I thought, okay, I'm going to talk about mental health. You know, I'm going to talk about disappointment in a real way. I'm going to talk about immigrants and how what immigrants go through when they come to this country. I'm going to talk about, you know, sexual orientation and how that uh, plays out in a black community, in an immigrant community. Uh, and I thought it was just really important to share those really key points and also all of those things that make me who I am. They're all different communities that make me the person I am today that explains why I do what I do, why I use my platform for a voice, why why I stand up when a protester comes on stage. I mean, it is everything that is, I wanted people to see this book, this product is who I am and I hope that it inspires and motivates you as well. You speak for many who may feel as if they don't have a voice particularly in today's current environment. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I've looked at what has happened the last three years, and it's saddened me. Look, I think that America has a complicated history, and we have to own up to that. We have the original sin. We have things that have happened in this country um, that we actually don't talk about enough, right, whether it's slavery, the, um, um, the genocide of indigenous people, and on and on and on. But we're in 2019, and we should be looking forward. We should be looking to bring in everyone. And it's not happening. It's very divisive right now. And it's very ugly. And it's very partisan. And in many ways, and I write about this in my book, my immigrant working, you know, working class parents had the same worries as white working class parents. They had the same worries, which is how to put food on the table, how to put your kids to school, how to make sure you can pay the rent. I mean, basic things. And so this is the conversation that I hope that we have as well is um, is like, how do how where do we see this country going? 
What is the direction? And that's what November 2020 is going to mean. Where do you see the direction of this country? What do you want it to be? You write that there is a difference between policy and politics. For our listeners, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, politics is what we, what many of these uh, elected officials do, what we all do, is we try to uh, have a message that resonates people. It's very much political and strategy and how we're going to move through um, a, a new cycle and how we're going to get attention. But then policy are things that's going to change your life. They're actual pieces of legislation that's going to be put together by the people who are around the table or who is the person that is the elected official. And they're going to decide on health care. They're going to decide on the minimum wage. They're going to decide on the economy and what they, those, those decisions that they make will guide how the economy goes. And so education. And so that is the thing that we have to remember. And I encourage people to vote because if you stay home, all of the things that you care about, especially when I talk to young people, you care about climate change, you care about gun reform, you care about the economy, finding a job, you care about things that move you and that affect your life. Lean in, get involved. Don't just vote. You got to lean in a little bit more. But voting is key. Don't you think that we are in a stage now where, as you've said, everything is so divided Mm -hmm. and that. Some would argue that the current administration has just simply flooded the zone with so many stories every day that there's just governance fatigue and people Mm. are like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. How do you take folks who are thinking that way and encourage them to be involved? So I look at people always ask me if I'm hopeful and I say, yes, I'm hopeful, even though we're living in a divisive uh, America and our people who argue we've been living in a divisive America for a long time. It's just that we have a we have an administration that is very bold about it and leans into the divisiveness. And I think about the last three years and how people have gotten involved. And when things have been incredibly ugly, or you think, oh my gosh, where are we going as a country? You have folks who show up at the women's march. And, and give their voices, a very uh, multi-generational, very diverse group of people coming out. When you have the Muslim ban, you have people showing up at airports, offering their services to help people. Uh, you think about the repeal of ACA, you have people from the disability community coming and putting their body on their line because they have to fight for their health care. When you think about families being separated at the border, young children being caged and separated, People come together and march. Families belong together march in 2018. It goes on and on. And then there's the electoral process that we've seen in the last three years. And, you know, you think about Louisiana and Kentucky, two deep, deep red states. What happened? People came out, both independents, suburban suburban communities, and African-Americans came out and they said, you know what? We can't do this. We have to send a message. So you had a, a Democratic governor hold on to Louisiana, which we didn't think he was going to do, and a Democratic governor win Kentucky, a state that Donald Trump won by 30 points in 2016. And what is happening is that even if you look at the numbers, even people who voted for him are saying, okay, this is too much. This is too much. We need we need some normalcy. We have to come out and vote. And this is off your election. This is 2019. And I think that you see people speaking up. Independents, suburban white women who are, you know, soccer moms, are crossing over and saying, sending a message. Um, and I think it took a coalition to win in Kentucky and Louisiana. And I think that should say something. I should send a loud message of hope, of, um, of where the country is. We, people don't want this. I, I truly, truly believe that people don't want this or are tired of it. 
And uh, and I think that's what we'll see in 2020. But we still have to come out and vote. Our guest is Corinne Jean-Pierre. Her book is Moving Forward, A Story of Hope, Hard Work, and the Promise of America. Corinne, as we talk, this uh, you're in Atlanta, yes. and Atlanta and Georgia, the epicenter this week of the Democratic Party, as yeah. there has been a Democratic Party debate at Tyler Perry Studios mm-hmm. this past Wednesday. From the work that you're doing at MoveOn.org, do you see Georgia as a purple state that is perhaps winnable for whoever the nominee is absolutely in 2020 absolutely i think georgia with the work of uh people like stacy abrams have worked really hard to register people to try and make georgia more blue or turn it blue less purple if you will and i think if anything georgia is much more of a playing field for democrats than texas I think Georgia is is more closely to turn blue for Democrats in 2020 than Texas because people have been talking about the the, the trend of Texas. Um, and uh, Georgia is going to be an important part of that, I believe, and should be of that 270, the electoral colleges that's needed for whoever is their nominee to win, including clearly Democrats in this case. And um, the work that I've been seeing in this in the state is amazing, is amazing. I mean, what Stacey Abrams was able to do in 2018 is phenomenal. I mean, she ran one of the most impressive, successful, if you will, uh, uh, races for a Democratic nominee in decades. And uh, and I think that means something. And people are energized. Uh, we just have to continue to get people out there, register to vote. And whoever is the nominee, the Democratic nominee, needs to take Georgia very, very seriously. I know when I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, we did. We looked at Georgia very seriously. And uh, we had people here. It was just, we just felt like, uh, it may not be quite the time we were able to win Virginia. But we were, it was, we were almost there in 2008, or we were close to being there. Um and so since then, it's been 11 years since then, and the trend has been changing. So I think, yeah, I think that uh, Georgia is an interesting state to watch uh, for Democrats in 2020. What do you say to the voter who is concerned that, oh, I didn't vote, my name may not be on the roll, it may be mm-hmm. difficult for me to vote, mm-hmm. and then there's the whole business about election meddling? Yes, and that's a real, real voter suppression, voter ID laws has been really an epidemic in most in most recent times in the last 10 years. And if you look at Wisconsin, which is one of the big three states, the blue wall that helps that has helped in the past, Democrats get to 270, we lost that. One of the reasons, I would argue, is you had 200,000 people who couldn't vote. And you saw that in North Carolina. So voter suppression is real. And who does it affect? We have to be very honest about this. It affects black people, brown people, and poor people. That's who that is the essence of voter suppression to make sure people of color, poor people don't go and vote because they know if you you go and vote, you can win. And it is it is something that Democrats need to start focusing on in a real way. And look, if we win in 2020, it's going to be in spite of voter suppression, not because of it. It's going to be in spite of and we just have to educate ourselves, understand what the voter ID laws are in your state, um, and make sure you are ready to go. And whoever, once again, the DNC and whoever's the, the Democratic nominee needs to have a program ready to go to help people um, out on election day. It's gonna be it's gonna be tough. It's going to play a it's gonna play a big role again, voter suppression in twenty in twenty twenty. It did in twenty eighteen. It did in twenty seventeen. It certainly did in twenty sixteen. It's not gonna go away. There's no such thing as a perfect candidate. 
uh, even the ones we thought were perfect, no longer offer themselves for office. So it's likely that the nominees on on both sides are likely to be flawed. Mm-hmm. How does a voter get behind? And you've worked for yeah. uh, folks that you would describe as flawed candidates. Yeah, I have a whole uh, chapter in my book about flawed candidates. I think in 2020, whoever's the nominee, I do believe whoever's the nominee on the Democratic side, that people are going to be they're going to be all in because if you look at the polling, uh, the number one. Uh, thing that people look at, at least in the Democratic base, is they want to remove Donald Trump for office. I mean, it is the number one thing that they look at, and you see the energy in the last three years. I do think that you're going, to, we're going to need a movement to happen. You have to be able to excite people uh, to get folks out there. It's not going to be easy, and um, whoever's the nominee has to be inspiring. They're going to have to figure out whoever you are. You got to inspire. You got to motivate, motivate people. You got to get folks who don't normally vote to come out and vote. Even though Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016, we still had a low voter turnout. We cannot have that. So that means the nominee has to be able to excite people and get folks out to vote. That's the only that's the you know, you can't just look at the last three years and say, oh, okay, well, electorally, we did really fantastic. No, 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 no. It is it is going to take a movement. And I think, you know, we have to you know, Donald Trump can win. He can win next year. That is a reality. And if that scares you or bothers you, or worries you, then think about that and think about the next four years. And what do you have to do to change that? Make sure that doesn't happen. Vote. You got to go out and vote. Exercise your right to vote. Let's talk about the conversations that families are having around the kitchen table, which should be quite interesting this Thanksgiving. (laughs) When you talk to young people, Mm -hmm. young adults who want to be involved, but aren't exactly sure how they feel about everything. What do you say to them? I say young people. Just look at where we are currently today. Is this where you want to be? Is this is is this the, this place that you want this country to be in? Look at the economy. Look at the climate change. Look at everything that matters to you. And if that bothers you, then you have to lean in. We need you to lean in. But the economy right now is in pretty good shape. Well, for some people, for everyday people, and you hear it, they they don't see it. The tax the tax cuts that happened, that hurt everyday people. That hurt working class people, whether you're white, black, it doesn't matter. It hurt you. You didn't see the you didn't see the fruit of that. And only the very, very wealthy did. And so you hear people. I've been, you know, I've been on this book tour. I've been crisscrossing the country. I've been to Missouri. I'm now in Georgia. I've been to Florida. I've been to Arizona. And people really share with me how they're feeling, their fear. And um, and so you have to it is going to be a choice. It really is going to be a choice next year in November It's going to be what direction do you want this country to go in? And we cannot afford to sit back. We just can't. We really, really cannot. There's too much at stake. And that's what I, that's a conversation I have with young people all the time. I teach young people, as you mentioned, um, and, uh, and I see young folks at these events that I'm having for my book across the country, as I just mentioned, and I just implore them. I'm like, come on, and not just vote. We need you to lean in. Uh, the March for Our Lives kids, they were a wonderful, wonderful example of what young people need to do. And now, mind you, they were their lives changed because of a tragic, horrible, horrible event. And um, having to see your peers and people you love and care about die in your school is not the way young people should be living their lives and what did they do they took action one of the reasons you saw a 16 percent increase in youth voters and young voters i should say uh in from 2014 to 2018 i think is because of them as well 
you know, young people came out in 2018. We just need to do that and more. So they're, I think they're awake. I think they see what's going on. We just have to keep leaning in. What is it that you want readers to take away from your book? I want readers, um, the way I dedicate my book, I thought about this. This was really, really important to me. When I was dedicating my book, I thought, oh, I'm going to dedicate it to my mom and my sister and the, the women in my life and elevate them and uh, my daughter and all of this. And I thought, no, there's something. This book is is bigger than that. I love them to death, but it's bigger than that. And I thought, I and I wrote this in, um, it's in, it's in the um uh, it's in the uh, dedication, the beginning of the book, which is, which is, I dedicate this book to every anyone who has ever been told no. I hope this book motivates you and inspires you. And that is the main ingredient of my book, to motivate and inspire. And whether it's getting into politics, running yourself, or understanding if you have bad you know, bad, a bad time in life. You don't know how to get up. This is a story that helps you get up and also getting involved in the political process. Karine Jean-Pierre is the chief public affairs officer for Move On, also public political analyst at MSNBC and a member of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Your book, Moving Forward, a story of hope, hard work and the promise of America. I really enjoyed your sharing and spending some time with Thank us. Thank you, Condes. I really, really appreciate being on. Thank you. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.